Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here this morning. How about you? All right. 2022. It's a new year. I saw a tweet this week with a quote from leadership guru John Maxwell that said, momentum solves 80% of your problems. And I thought, cool, 80% of my problems are not getting solved, at least anytime soon. Because let's be real, the last two years, the whole experience of them have been a real momentum murderer, right? It just feels like the events of the world have conspired to hold us back and stop us in our tracks. And I've seen the whole flood of 2022, 21-day fixes and new programs and tips and tricks for a new me and a new year. But if you guys are anything like me, it feels a little bit more difficult this year to be as hopeful about a new year as usual. Because I sit back and I think the world still has all the same old problems that we had before and they did not magically disappear when the clock struck midnight on New Year's. But my problem is I think Maxwell's onto something. I think momentum matters. Momentum, scientifically speaking, is mass times velocity. It's mass in motion. Not just motion itself, but something significant, something with a little bit of weight to it moving at speed. You know the great thing about mass in motion? It's kind of hard to stop, right? It tends to just roll over stuff. And when we have momentum in our lives, professionally, relationally, financially, spiritually, we seem to encounter the same problems everyone else around us does, but we just blow right past them. Like they're not even there. Keep on going like there wasn't an issue at all. Just boom. But when we don't have momentum, those exact same struggles can not only slow us down, they can stop us dead in our tracks and leave us feeling pretty hopeless. So what do we do with that? If our culture is to be believed, we try harder, work harder, grind harder until we can create all the momentum we need in order to seize the lives we want. That's a whole lot easier said than done because we're people. We're held back by a whole lot of stuff, the brokenness of the world around us, you know, our finite capabilities and more. So just for the, today, just for this morning, let's, let's pretend that this wooden circle here is all the stuff that limits us as human beings. This is like 24-hour days that we can't make longer. Gravity, the tiny little bit that we know compared to the incredible amount about our universe there is to know. Like all our faults and our failures and our, our flaws, just everything that restricts us from being able to do anything we imagine as humans is, is, is this circle. Jimmy, would you come up and sit on here for a second? All right, now here's what I want you to do, man. Would you sit right in the middle and then um, the secret that I didn't tell you, this is the bad side of the stage. It could collapse at any minute. That's why Scott and Jeremy are over there. So <laughs> could you just like get yourself on the board over there to the good side? Just try a little, a little harder. Oh, you can manage an inch. It's 
some people's kids, right? Just put effort into it. I quit. All right, that didn't work. Um, never. That, wow. Thanks for nothing, man. But like, it did kind of look like life sometimes though, didn't it? A whole lot of effort, incremental progress, exhaustion, and failure. Anyone else felt like that? Yeah, I have. But I got good news for you. If you're intrigued by the concept of momentum, but you feel like you got too little of it in your life, if you want to move forward from the place that you are to the place you believe God has for you, the good news is the momentum that you really need can't be created by your own effort. It actually exists outside of you. And so what you need most is not a plan to try harder. It's a picture of how to plug yourself into a force that already exists in your universe that wants to help you move. You guys, here's the thing. This is what God wants to do for us. He promises us, in fact, that he has already created all of the momentum we need to move. He does it a little bit quieter than a leaf blower, usually, but the thing of it is, there's a power that exists outside of us that helps us move in every single area of our lives, from the place where we are to the mission God has for us and what we got to do in the new year isn't figure out how to create that on our own. It's figure out how to tap into it because it's already there. Thanks, man. The beautiful news about what God tells us is that we don't have to labor to create momentum. We just have to learn to catch it. And that's what we're going to do over the course of this brand new series we're kicking off this morning called Fresh Wind. We're going to take a deep dive into Romans 8, which is a section that a whole lot of people believe is the the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Not because it's got a better message than the rest of the Bible, but because it's a great summary of the entire Bible. And as we do, as we walk through that chapter, we're going to find the keys to grabbing hold of the momentum God has already created and desires us to have in every single area of our lives. We're going to find the keys to moving forward from where we are to the lives God has for us in 2022. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible hand, you can crack it open to the book of Romans, chapter 8. It's toward the back. If you hit Acts, keep going. If you hit the Corinthians, go back. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. You can follow along with the words on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, we've got a whole bunch of them back at the Next Steps table. They're free. They're our gift to you. Please take one before you leave today. Romans is this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, this new church that was experiencing explosive growth. And he really wanted to go visit them and teach them live in person, but he hadn't gotten the chance to do that yet. And so he wrote a letter to make sure this new community was crystal clear on the story of God and humanity and on the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And it's incredibly powerful. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes this, Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, which gives life, set us free from the law of sin and death. What the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's a lot to unpack. But first things first, here's Mike's hermeneutics tip of the day. 
Hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret literature like the Bible. You totally don't need to remember that word, but do remember this because it's a solid piece of advice. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across the word therefore, you should ask the question, what is therefore therefore? Why did the author write therefore? And almost always, and certainly in this case for Paul, therefore is there to tell us what I'm about to write depends on what I've already written. Like in order for you to get this next part, you got to understand some of what I wrote. And so right off the bat, in Romans 8, Paul's telling us, for you to fully grasp what it means that there is no condemnation for those who know Jesus, you got to know a couple basic truths that I already covered. I think he's pointing to at least two major things. And the first one is this. We have all sinned and sin kills. We just look at the person next to you right now and tell them, you're a sinner. Just look at them, do it. I don't know what's so fun about that, but I like, it's just as universally true as telling them you're a human, but there's something great about making sure they know it from you, especially if you're related to them. But just in case you had too much fun, we're going to bring that full, full circle. Now you got to look at them and say, I'm a sinner too. It's true. It's one of the core truths that Paul makes sure we understand in the book of Romans, that every single one of us has sinned. All of us have not met the bar that God set. We've rejected God, turned our backs on Him, and run away from Him. And in the process of doing that, we have hurt God, ourselves, and everyone around us. And that hurt has brought death into our lives and into our world. We're disconnected from the Creator who made us for Himself, and that lack of connection brings death. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, he tells us the wages of sin, the thing our sin has earned, the thing our sin deserves, is death. And so that's the status of our universe. It's where we all exist. In this space, it's kind of like what happens to your cell phone when you unplug it in the morning. What happens? It begins to die immediately, slowly, but immediately. As soon as it's unplugged, it starts to die. And that's us. We are unplugged from the source and we are dying. So that's the first big idea that sets up Romans 8. And the second one is related, but it cuts a little deeper. Kind of like straight to the heart of us. And it's this. We sin because we want to. Even after we know Jesus. Even when we're Christians, the reason we fall short is that we aren't even trying to aim our lives in the direction of the target of God's holiness. Like the reason we break promises isn't we tried really hard to keep them and couldn't, it's that we found something that seemed more convenient than keeping the promise and we decided to do that instead. The reason we tell lies isn't that we tried really hard to tell the truth, but it just didn't work, it's that we didn't like the truth. The reason we speak cruel words to other people is that we tried to say kind things and somehow cruel words slipped out. How did that get out of my mouth? I don't know. Well, the reason is we wanted to hurt those people. The reason we sin is that we want to, even though we know Jesus, even though we're conscious of the fact that he willingly gave his life for us so we could be forgiven and set free, even though we know we owe a debt we couldn't pay, we still live in this awful way as though he didn't. We choose to cause pain to all the people we crash into because there are things in this world we want more than we want holiness and goodness and faithfulness and peace 
and harmony and community and it's gross and it's harmful and we know it, but we don't stop. We don't stop, even though we should and we have company. Not only everyone else sitting in this room and everyone watching online right now, but Paul, maybe the greatest Christian that ever lived this side of Jesus. In Romans 7, right before he writes what we just read in Romans 8, Paul writes this, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I do not want to do, uh, what, I, what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I don't know if any of you relate to Paul's words right here, but I do. I I resonate so deeply because when I mess it up, and that happens on a daily basis, I can't help but think, really? Like, again, come on, man, shouldn't I be better than this after all these years of following Jesus? Why did I do that? And at some point, God's going to get to the end of his rope with me. Like, there's got to be a line that just is too far, a line in the sand somewhere. I can maybe ask him for forgiveness 116 times for the same dumb thing, but uh, at 117, he's going to be like, no, I'm done. Stop lying that you really didn't want to do that. You keep on doing it. And I wonder if all of us have that same hang-up. I think we do. Sometimes we struggle with this idea that we're like, that we're forgiven. But then we sin and we're guilty all over again. And we know that we shouldn't have. And so we feel like we're condemned. And then we repent and we hope God will forgive us. And we say, like, okay, God forgave me. But then we sin and we feel condemned. And we hope God will forgive us. And then we sense that he forgave us. And we feel like we're forgiven. And then we feel condemned. And we just carry around this shame of every single time we have messed it up because we know that we owe God so much more and so much better than we're giving and we know that he should be angry with us. And we really do love Jesus and we really do want to be better but we can't seem to make it happen and we just walk around with the weight of all that guilt and something whispers into our brains, you are condemned. God is out on you after you rejected him again. How could you do that? God sees you through the lens of that sin, and there shouldn't be a way back for you. You're condemned. And it's into that space, that reality that Paul writes Romans 8.1. He says, no, 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 no. The cross. The cross happened, and the resurrection is real. And that means that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you're not in and out and in and out. But I feel like some of us hear that. We, we read this verse and we're tempted to go all like Buddy the Elf on Paul. There's no, there's no singing in the North Pole. Yes, there is. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. And Paul writes, there's no condemnation. And we're like, yes, there is. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. I sense it. Like, I can feel it. I'm walking around with condemnation every day. Don't tell me there's no condemnation, Paul. 
I'm carrying the weight of condemnation, so stop trying to tell me it doesn't exist. I know that it exists, but what Paul's trying to tell us in this verse is that if we continue to live like condemnation is a thing, like God looks at us through the lens of our mistakes, then we live like God is a liar and God is unjust. Because the word he uses that we translate condemnation is this compound Greek word that was a legal term in the first century. It's katakrima. Kata means against. Krima means judgment. Basically, it's a judgment against, a guilty verdict that says a penalty must be paid here because the law was broken. And so what Paul's trying to tell us in Romans 8.1 is that there is no longer any judgment against those of us who know Jesus. It doesn't exist. There's not a penalty to be paid. There's not a sentence to be served. Justice has been completely satisfied. And it's huge. But it's bigger even than most of us realize because I, I know, we get it, that once we put our faith in Jesus, we're forgiven. But it's difficult not to convince ourselves after that that, like, we're out again once we sin. That once we sin, we're guilty, and we, we owe a, a debt again, and we're, we're carrying this, this condemnation on us until we repent, and, and then maybe God will forgive us, but then we sin, and we're guilty again. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the message of Christianity. What Paul writes in Romans 8 is that there is no condemnation. It does not exist. It's not a thing. Faith in Jesus moves us out of the realm of a guilty verdict even being a possibility. First John 1 John 1.9, he writes, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just and will forgive us. And I know it's easy to read that and be like, well, if we confess, then he might forgive us. But that's not what that says. That's not how this whole following Jesus thing works. It's how a whole lot of other religions work. But that's not what that verse says if you read it clearly. Right? Paul doesn't say he's faithful and merciful and might forgive us. He says he's faithful and just and will forgive us. What he's trying to help us understand, or John there, is trying to help us understand that now, once we put our faith in Jesus, when we mess up, it is not God's mercy that causes him to forgive us, it is God's justice. And this may sound like a weird concept, but it's in the Bible, so hold on to your hats. If you put your faith in Jesus, it would be utterly unjust of God not to forgive you. Because here's what we know, Jesus stands as our advocate before the Father, and when we mess up, it's not this, it's not Jesus looking at the Father saying, oh man, just one more. Oh, Father, I know this is like 973 times I've asked this for Mike, and he's probably the dumbest idiot Christian that ever lived in the last 2,000 years, and I hate him too, but like, just one more time, please, 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 could maybe you forgive him? That's not what happens. John doesn't say he's, he's merciful to forgive. He says he's just to forgive. So what happens is Jesus said, oh, that wasn't good by Mike. I paid that though count him good. I paid that. Count her good. I paid that. Father, consider them clean, not because of your mercy. Your mercy was the thing that caused you to hatch a plan for forgiveness in the first place. Your mercy is the thing that sent me to earth, that pointed me toward the cross. Mercy is the thing that, that caused me to willingly lay down my life for their sake. But now in your justice, consider them clean because it would be unjust for you to demand two payments for one crime, two sentences for one crime. I paid the payment, 
and I served the sentence, condemnation is gone. It's gone. And we got to get it. God, look, the Father isn't like grumpy about that. He's not like, ah, Jesus, I'm stupid justice. I wanted to be against them, but I guess I can't because of justice. Like, it's not it at all. No, justice is such a part of who God is. It's knit into the fabric of our universe. God joyfully, in mercy, created the space for forgiveness to be possible. And God joyfully in justice forgives, which means condemnation is gone, baby, gone, past, present, and future, and nothing can change that. Absolutely nothing. It's like when my kids like, put another dent in the drywall from throwing something. They've been repeatedly asked not to throw inside the house, and they say, sorry, Dad. They're not telling me sorry because they think I kicked them out of my family until they're sufficiently apologetic. And then they're back in once they say sorry, and then they're going to be back out when they inevitably throw the stupid thing again and put another hole in the drywall. That's not it. They're, they're in. That whole communication is based on loving relationship because nothing could put them out, and that's us. We're in forever. We cannot be removed. And that changes everything for you and me. There is now no condemnation, no katakrama, no guilty verdict against those of us who've put our faith in Jesus, no matter what we've done or how far gone we think we are. I got kind of an interesting question for you this morning, but like, I want you to think about real quickly, what is the worst thing you've ever done? What's your most awful moment? Like the thing in your life you most desperately wish you could hop in a DeLorean and go back and fix? Maybe it's hard to pick just one. Maybe you got like a top 10 or a whole, whole list of things that are going through your head right now. Probably most of us do. But here's what I want to ask you about that thing or, or that list of things. Do you still feel condemned? Do you still feel like there's a guilty verdict on your life for that stuff? That's not to say there might not be consequences of your actions that you're still living with. But deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, do you feel like God is holding that against you? If he is, he's a liar. And if he's not a liar, that means you don't got to carry it around for one more minute or one more day of your life. And God is not a liar. And this is why this matters so much for you and me. One of the greatest inhibitors in our life to momentum is the anchors that hold us back. And if we're going to seize the momentum God has for us, that God wants for us in our spiritual lives and in our entire lives, because make no mistake about this, your spiritual life sets the tone. Your spiritual life determines the flavor of your entire life. Your relationship with God spills out over everything you are and everything you do. And if we're going to seize the spiritual momentum that pulls our entire lives forward, then we've got to cut ourselves loose from the things that hold us back. And condemnation is one of the heaviest anchors you will ever carry. Ever. But if you can learn to cut that anchor loose and you can truly believe that there is no condemnation, that you can live differently. One of the greatest pastors and philosophers of the 20th century was a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he once looked at his congregation and asked them this question. Do you realize that most of your troubles today are due to your failure to realize the truth of Romans 1.8? 
Like, what if we realized that truth today and we walked out of here free and we cut that anchor? Well, then Paul makes it clear that one of the things that would absolutely happen if we got set free from that anchor is that the fresh wind of the Spirit of God would begin to blow in our lives and propel us forward as we found ourselves able to look at God's law and God's commands through a completely different lens that allowed us to live more fully alive and be more fully human. This is what Paul's getting at when, when he writes, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. What Paul's saying there isn't that there are two laws, like the law of life and the law of sin and death. He's saying that there's one law, the same thing, but it accomplishes different things in different hands. What God's law, what God's commands do in your life kind of depends on whose hands they're in. And to illustrate this, I made up a game this morning. It's called Surgeon versus Psycho. It's a binary choice. You got to shout out your choice on the count of three. If you were to hand both the people on the screen a big old sharp knife, which one would you trust with that knife more? Surgeon or the psycho? On the count of three. One, two, three. Surgeon. Why? Well, because a knife in the hand of a surgeon, maybe not that surgeon, but anyways, like a knife in the hand of a surgeon brings healing. A knife in the hand of a psycho brings harm. Same knife, just a whole different outcome. What Paul's trying to help us understand here is that God's law, God's commands in the hands of sin brings death, but in the hands of the Spirit brings life. Like when we're caught up in sin, we're enslaved to it. Before we know Jesus, we're, we're condemned because we have fallen short of the standard that the law sets. But when we exist in a reality where condemnation is no longer a thing, then God's commands can actually help us live more fully alive and set us free to be all we were made to be. That's why it matters that we internalize this truth of Romans 8.1 and allow it to sink deep into our souls. It frees us up to live in a totally different way, even though we're still messed up and we have this pernicious nature inside of us that just wants to be rebels, that sees laws and wants to break them because this just is remember when Jenny and I first got married, we lived on campus at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, because I was going to seminary there. And the seminary is at the very back of the campus, and there's only one road that goes through. And so to get from the entrance of the campus to our house was like a seven-minute drive over 10 speed bumps. And then one day, after we'd lived there for about a year, I noticed a brand new sign that had gotten put up by the walking path, which wound along the lake by the entrance to the campus, and it said, no motor vehicles allowed. And I thought to myself, I have literally never thought about driving my car down the walking path till right now, but at this point, that's all I want to do. That's the only thing I want to do in this world is drive down the walking path. And I did, and it only took three minutes to get to my house, and there were no speed bumps, unless you count the college kids I hit. But, like, I was kidding about that, but, like, it was so fun to break the rule that I spent a whole lot of the next two years just driving my car down the walking path that you're not supposed to go down. It's not my greatest, most follow the pastor and be like me moment, but I tell it to illustrate this, this point. Like, there's something in us that, that wants to rebel 
And sometimes we see laws, laws we didn't even know about before, and we just want to violate them because we decide, well, that law must be some sort of pen that's holding me back, that's keeping me from the life that I want to live. Laws bring death. But when we've been liberated by Jesus, we begin to see laws differently, not as a pen, but as a pasture, as the place we can go to where life and hope and peace and meaning and rest are found. Like the laws no longer condemn us, but they point us toward hope and beauty, toward the space where we can be most fully who we were made to be, and they define the boundaries, outside of which we're free to travel, but outside of which we will not, we cannot find the lives we desperately long for. Yes, I think we got to start seeing God's commands as a pasture and not a pen. It makes a difference because we're, we're sinful. We're still messed up. And because we're sinful, God's law cannot make us good. Can't do it. But it can show us where the good is found. And that's what it's here for, not for condemnation. Condemnation doesn't exist anymore, but to point us toward life. And when we see that, it transforms the way we live because it sets us free from this idea that life in God, the lives we were made for, depend almost entirely on our own efforts, that we got to fight for it, that we got to strive for it, that we got to check enough boxes or God will be against us, that we got to somehow by our own power and by the force of our will be so good that God has to love us and cannot reject us. That all of life is about striving. It's hard, though, not to think like that in the middle of this culture. Because we're surrounded by a whole bunch of religious systems that tell us that extreme effort is the only way for humanity to be right with the divine. The last words of Siddhartha Gautama, better known as Buddha, were, strive unceasingly to gain your own salvation. Dude, so many people, so many people we crash into out there in the world have bought into that idea, hook, line, and sinker. So many religions are built on that, striving. And it's fascinating, even irreligious people in our culture think like that. We're living in the middle of this like, fascinating phenomenon, I think. The Western world inherited an incredibly high moral standard from Christianity without fully realizing that that's where the standard came from. But as we shift into secular humanism as the religion of the day, full post-Christianity, we seem to want to hold on to the moral standard, but we no longer have any category for sin or atonement or forgiveness, which means that like, without the power and presence of Jesus, our society has no ability whatsoever to live up to its own vision. And so what we end up with is is this group of people who would claim that they're irreligious, but functionally they're neo-Pharisees. They have a whole long list of rules, a set of do's and don'ts and lines that must never be crossed or you're canceled, and their entire lives become morally performative theater rooted in self-righteousness. But I think rooted even more deeply than that in shame. And in this terror that somebody will find out they aren't good enough because deep down they know they're not. This fear that the world might learn they aren't even living up to their own standards. 
We are surrounded every single day by people held back by the prison of the idea that you must strive unceasingly to gain your own salvation. But Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Done. Jesus called game. And that's why condemnation doesn't exist anymore. It's not a thing. It's gone. You don't got to fight for God to love you or accept you. He already did it all. Condemnation is gone and the Holy Spirit of God is here. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. That we have received the Spirit of God, not just around us, but within us. And so we can live differently. It's fascinating when Jesus disciples first received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 22, that Jesus did something kind of weird. It says he breathed on them saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Spirit. Receive the Spirit. Which is odd and also not COVID friendly at all. Like six feet, Jesus. But what he was doing is kind of cool. He was helping them understand how the Spirit would function in their lives. You see, the word in, in Hebrew and Greek for spirit is the same as the word for wind and the word for breath. And by breathing on them, Jesus wasn't like literally breathing the spirit into them. He was saying the spirit is going to move in your lives like a fresh wind. There's a whole new way forward, and it's not about striving anymore. It's about surrendering at this point and allowing the spirit to propel you in your walk with God and in every other area of your life forward toward what he has for you. This is radical stuff. It was new in the history of the world. I think 2,000 years later, it's still hard for us to believe it. It's still hard for us to internalize it and figure out what that actually means and how we actually live it out. But the best word picture I've ever heard that, that helps us understand what this means in our lives was, was given to me by a, a friend and a mentor of mine named Craig Smith. He said it like this, imagine for a minute, and imagine with me for a minute, that we were born slaves, and we've lived our entire lives below deck on this filthy, dirty barge, and as soon as we're old enough, we're set on a wooden bench and handed a wooden oar and told to row hard or we'll be whipped. And it's backbreaking, and it's exhausting, but it's the only thing we've ever known. And then one day there's a commotion and the door flings open and someone else appears below deck. And who should it be but our master's greatest enemy? And our master sneers and says, what are you doing here? And the enemy says, I'm here for them. I came to set them free. And our master cackles and says, why would I do that? I own them and they're mine. What could you possibly offer me that would make me set them free? And his enemy replies, me. My life for theirs, and the master smiles and takes the deal and runs a sword straight through him. And as his enemy drops to the deck, our master says, well, a deal's a deal. You're free and disappears. And we sit there confused, wondering what just went on and what happens now. But then this would-be savior begins to stir. And he crosses his hands and his knees and then stands up and says, oh, I have a place that's so much better than this. And I want to take you there. What's the first thing we would do? What's our natural instinct going to be? Every last one of us is going to grab an oar. Say, all right, how do we get there? We're, we're ready to row hard in the direction of a new master that's demanding that we row. Let's, let's go to this guy's place. And we tell him, okay, take us to the good place. We're ready to row. 
And our Savior looks at us and says, oh, no, 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 we can't get there by rowing. It's actually beyond our efforts. And he leads us up onto the deck and unfurls sails. We never knew we were there before. And as they ripple out across the boom, eventually they catch wind. And the ship lurches forward faster and further than we could ever take it ourselves. And our Savior says, this is how we get to the place I have for you. Because that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That you don't got to earn it because you couldn't anyway. But that God loves you and there is now no condemnation, which means you can follow him fully. You can surrender your life fully. You can begin to see the lives that he has for you and the rules that he has for you, not as a pen that holds you back, but as a pathway to the life that you were made for. And you can begin to live like that. And so I think the functional question for us is in the middle of this new year where we're we're still seeing all the tips and tricks to earn your way forward and to, to bootstrap yourself to the life you want, the functional question for you in 2022 is, are you rowing harder? raising sales? Are you rowing hard or raising sales? Are you still believing that you got to earn your right to be loved by God? I think if you do, I think if we keep trying to do this on our own, we will just not get there. We're going to stay restricted by all the stuff that restricts us. But if we believe that the power of the Spirit of God exists outside of us, then God will blow in our lives like a fresh wind that allows us to capture momentum and move from where we are to the places he has for us. It's not about striving, it's about surrendering. Will you guys pray with me? Oh, thank you. Thank you for being the fresh wind that blows in our lives. Thank you for not leaving us in this space where we had to earn our way forward because we couldn't earn our way forward. Lord, I know so many of us have been walking around carrying guilt, carrying shame, believing that you see us through the lens of our worst moments and you hold it against us and we're condemned. And Lord, I pray today that through you, because of what you accomplished when you died on the cross and rose again, that you'd liberate us from that, that you'd liberate us from this situation where we're rowing and rowing and rowing and never getting where we want to go and help us just surrender to you in a way that allows us to live more fully alive, in a way that allows us to move from where we are to the places you have for us, in a way that allows us to live on mission with you in every area of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.